is a special Sabbath today, of course. It is the weekly Sabbath between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Unleavened, uh, the Day of Atonement. And so there's a lot of meaning uh, that we will discuss today regarding the time period prophetically that we are in today during this Sabbath between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> Let's begin the sermon by turning to a familiar scripture, Colossians chapter 2. I'd like to begin there. It really helps us set the tone for the sermon today <clears throat> on God's weekly Sabbath. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. You know this passage. Let's review it briefly. And let's read it correctly, the way it should have been translated by the translators. Therefore, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a feast day, a feast day, or or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come except for the body of Christ. It is the church of God, the body of Christ, that does have the authority to judge in those matters how we do observe uh, God's holy days. But notice here, brethren, that in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, it's very clear, according to Paul, as he was inspired by God, that the holy days prefigure, they they shadow, they pre-shadow something that is to come. They, they foreshadow something more significant, more powerful, more awesome, more wonderful. They don't only look back. We are going to look back today in the sermon. There's tremendous meaning, as we know, recorded in the pages of Leviticus and throughout the pages of Isaiah and elsewhere, which we will review today. Tremendous meaning for us regarding God's holy days. But brethren, they look forward. They are a shadow of things to come. They're a shadow of things to come. Even God's weekly Sabbath is a shadow of something to come. It prefigures the millennial rest, the 1,000-year millennium. Of course, looks back to creation as well. But here, according to Paul, these holy days that we're now observing, the fall holy days as well as all of God's holy days, they do have future meaning, future meaning. Let's begin the sermon by very briefly reviewing God's holy days, and we'll spend quite a lot of time discussing the Day of Atonement, because it is the Day of Atonement that is the next of God's holy days that we are looking forward to observing. And the Day of Atonement shadows something to come as well, doesn't it? There are significant events that will occur uh, on the Feast of Trumpets, and then there will be a year-long period, the day of the Lord, and then there will be the the bowls, and and then there will be the day of atonement, and all that that uh, prefigures, and then of course what the Feast of Tabernacles prefigures, the millennium. So let's review some of what God has left us or recorded for us in Scripture uh, that the Holy Days picture. We'll begin, of course, with Passover. Passover is the first festival. Passover itself is not a holy day. It is a sacred, solemn observance. It's not a holy day, however. Passover, we know, is a sacred occasion. It pictures the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins from the world, the sins from the earth, and takes away your sin and my sin. Let's turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Why was it, brethren, John chapter 1, why was it that the... That, the, uh, that John the Baptist in John chapter 1, why did he refer to Jesus the way he did? John 1 verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin from the world. The first step in God's plan of salvation for each of us individually and for the world as a whole, was that Jesus Christ had to be slain, which was foreordained from the foundation of the world in order to take away sin so that we can escape the penalty of our sins, which is eternal death, and so that we can have our sins forgiven and enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
So John recognized who Jesus was, and he described him as the Lamb of God. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. Again, just very briefly touching on the meaning of the Passover. I'm not going to turn to Leviticus uh, to discuss the Passover right now. We're going to just touch on the meaning of God's holy days very briefly and then spend a lot of time discussing atonement. Revelation 5. Here we have a different John, the Apostle John. And of course, as we know, he was on uh, the island. And as it says in John, uh, in Revelation 1.1, Jesus Christ gave John this vision of, of things to come. So here, Jesus Christ is, record, is inspiring John to record these words. Revelation 5, verse 6. <clears throat> John looks, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, that same lamb that John the Baptist saw a few uh, decades earlier. Now the Apostle John sees that same lamb, but now this is Christ in His glory, and He is at God's throne. I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, uh, sent out into all the earth. And then he t- came and took the scroll and out of the he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne and only Jesus Christ the lamb slain from the foundation of the world the lamb who died for our sins uh, by whose shed blood our sins are forgiven are covered kapar which is a meaning that we'll discuss momentarily regarding the day of atonement the day of atonement and the passover have similar uh, similar lessons to teach us, but that lamb was worthy to take the scroll and, of course, to open the scroll. So here we have Jesus Christ in his majesty. We know in 1 Corinthians, we won't turn there, but in 1 Corinthians, the uh, New Testament symbols for Passover were instituted. And so we in God's church who are baptized and who have searched ourselves and who have <clears throat> come before God in a humble, repentant attitude, we We take of those symbols during the Passover service, those New Testament symbols. The second festival and the first of the holy days, of course, would be the the first holy day that's the first day of unleavened bread. The days of unleavened bread begin with and end with the holy day. They picture purging out of leaven, purging out of uh, pride and malice and wickedness and doubt and all of those evils, brethren, that we're all afflicted with, that we've all had to come out of, and that we all struggle to overcome each day of our life, every week of our lives. We, we fight the old man. Paul talked about that. And so each year we observe and we humbly uh, participate in and worship God on the days, during the days of unleavened bread. And before those days, we search ourselves and we search our homes and we remove the leavening from our homes. And that reminds us to remove the leavening from our lives. We mentioned 1 Corinthians. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and review what Paul records here regarding the attitude uh, and the meaning that we should remember and remind ourselves of regarding the days of unleavened bread. Again, very briefly moving through God's annual festivals, annual holy days, and reminding ourselves of their deep meaning. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. <clears throat> Paul is admonishing the Corinthian church. Uh, they were condoning sin. They were vainly puffed up, uh, reveling in the fact that they were so forgiving, so, I guess, righteous, that they were allowing and condoning uh, this terrible sin that was going on in their midst. And so Paul corrects them in verse 6, and he tells them that their glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? So Paul instructed them to purge out the old leaven. And this person was purged out of the, the, the church because of the sin that he was not repenting of, but he is instructing the Corinthians that they personally and we personally need to purge out the leaven that, that we have in our lives. We need to do that daily, but of course before the days of unleavened bread it's very important to remember to, remember to do that as well. Uh, Verse 7, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. It begins with 
Christ's Passover, His death, His shed blood, that begins that plan of salvation. And the holy days, of course, do picture God's plan of salvation for us individually and all of mankind. Therefore, verse 8, let us keep the feast. And he's discussing the feast of unleavened bread, not with the old leaven, not with uh, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so today we, we do remind ourselves of that during the days and before the days of unleavened bread. Of course, then next comes the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of first fruits, which pictures that small harvest of begotten followers. We're begotten now by God's Holy Spirit. If we are baptized, repented, have had hands laid on us, we're begotten now. And it pictures that first fruit, of, uh, that first fruit harvest. <clears throat> Let's turn to James 1, verse 18. James 1, verse 18. We know that in the Old Testament, we won't turn there, but we know that there were two loaves that the priest brought before uh, God, before the altar. That one loaf pictured the Old Testament church. The other loaf pictured the New Testament church. Those two loaves. And so, brethren, we see even through that Levitical... um, uh, uh, what, what the Levites did, what the priests did through that action, that God was, was looking forward to us, looking forward to the New Testament church represented by that second loaf. Here in James chapter 1, verse 18, uh, we are referred to as uh, a, a type of first fruits. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of God, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You and I, we are being brought forth and we hope to become first fruits and inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God. Then, of course, we have next the Feast of Trumpets. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, moving quickly through God's holy days, and then we'll slow down and spend quite a bit of time discussing the Day of Atonement, which is the next holy day that we look forward to, anticipate observing. The Feast of Trumpets... First Thessalonians chapter 4, we're familiar with this scripture as well. <clears throat> a very important scripture, something that we can comfort each other in when we lose someone who we love, when somebody dies and we've lost them. We know they're not gone forever. We know that they're not in hellfire burning. We know they're not up in heaven right now looking down on us. First, First Thessalonians, I apologize if I said Corinthians. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We in God's church are so blessed. It's such a a blessing. It's such a, a, a wonderful gift that we have that understanding. And so we don't sorrow like those in the world that they don't know where their loved ones are. And they don't know if their loved ones are in hellfire burning or if they're just gone forever. They don't know. And we know, brethren, the Word of God is very clear that those who have died are asleep. They're, they're in the grave without thought. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and here Paul is looking forward to this future reality of Christ's return. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with Him those who are dead in Christ, those who sleep in Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord. Paul is being very, very strong here. And he's instructing us that those who are alive and remain until Christ's return, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So, Abraham, David, Esther... They will be changed. They will be resurrected. Scripture indicates instantaneously before us. We will not precede them. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord." Once we have been resurrected into immortality, we will always be with God, always be with Christ, always be with the Lord. We will be at one with God. 
we will be spirit. We will live for that thousand-year period known as the millennium. We will live through the hundred-year period that follows known as the great white throne judgment. And we will live forever and ever and ever and ever until into the future. There will be no end to our existence. And we will rule and we will serve under God and we will uh, be tasked with responsibilities. And as it says throughout Scripture, uh, God has a wonderful plan and we don't know all that He has in store for us and that His government will continue and be without end. And we will be part of that. <clears throat> Matthew twenty four thirty one. Matthew 24, 31, still just a few comments regarding the meaning that the Feast of Trumpets uh, conveys to us, the meaning that we can take away from the Feast of Trumpets. Matthew 24, verse 31. Begin in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation, it's interesting to me how precise God is, and why wouldn't he be precise, of course? But notice how precise God is in the wording, in the language. Immediately after the tribulation. Well, that's, that's right, isn't it? It's immediately after the tribulation. The tribulation is how long? We are protected for a time, times, and half a time. The tribulation, technically, that slice of that end time is two and a half years. The day of the Lord is a year. And so Christ, Christ, inspi- Christ uh, describes it, of course, precisely. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. And so we have the announcements that begin to announce the day of the Lord, the year-long period known as the day of the Lord. Uh, the stars will fall from heaven, verse 29, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so we have that year-long uh, period, the day of the Lord. And it concludes, of course, <clears throat> with Christ and his righteous saints that will descend down upon the earth after the wedding and Satan will be overthrown Satan will be bound and Christ will rule we'll rule under him for a thousand years and then we come to the day of atonement which we're touching on that the meaning of the day of atonement uh, right now but we now come to the day of atonement next in God's holy day plan his holy day calendar what does the day of atonement picture brethren <clears throat> we are <clears throat> looking forward to our fast. We're looking forward to more prayer and Bible study, more meditation, more reading of the Scripture. We're looking forward to Sabbath services on the Day of Atonement. But what we're really looking forward to are those future events that the Day of Atonement prefigures, that it's a shadow of those things to come. Do we delight in that knowledge? Do we think about that? reality. What does atonement picture? Well, the Day of Atonement pictures the banishment of Satan, one of the most momentous events that will have ever transpired. It pictures mankind becoming, or it pictures those who have been resurrected, becoming at one with God, becoming part of the God family. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. Most likely, this event will take place on the Day of Atonement, which follows the Feast of Trumpets, which precedes the Feast of Tabernacles. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up 
and put a seal on him so that Satan could not go out to deceive the nations anymore until those thousand years were finished. After the thousand years, then he will be released for a little while. And he will deceive again. That will be the period of the great white throne judgment. Let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. We fast on the Day of Atonement. Why do we fast on the Day of Atonement? We've seen a little insight. We've had a little insight into what the Day of Atonement pictures. But why do we fast on the Day of Atonement? We're commanded to, of course. But why do we fast? Leviticus 23, verse 27. Leviticus 23, 27. The tenth day of the seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. It is a high Sabbath day. You shall afflict your souls. We shall fast on the Day of Atonement. And we shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do do no work. No work. It's always been interesting to me if you glance up to verse 25, discussing the Feast of Trumpets. You shall do no customary work. You glance down to verse 35 regarding the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. We could notice Pentecost, verse 21. You shall do no customary work. But on the Day of Atonement, we do no work. No work. None. It's a very, very holy day. It's a very joyous day in what it pictures, but it's a very sober, sobering day as well. <clears throat> we won't turn there, but of course we know that to fast is to do without food and water. Esther 4.16 is a, is a scripture you could cross-reference, which makes it clear, and there are others, that when we fast, we have no food, nor do we drink water for that time period when we're fasting. Fasting is also a very powerful spiritual tool to draw closer to God. Let's notice an example of this. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Fasting helps us draw very, very close to God, brethren. And God wants us to draw close to Him every day of our lives, but especially on the Day of Atonement, because there's significant meaning in what will occur on that day, what that day pictures. Satan being banished. Looking forward to us being at one with God forever and ever. Mark chapter 9. Let's notice in verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out and to enter that boy no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. Verse 27, Mark chapter 9, But Jesus took him up, took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, and they said, Why could we not cast out this evil spirit? They had cast out other spirits. They had healed people. They had preached in Christ's name. But they could not cast out this spirit. This was an exceptionally powerful demon, apparently. And Christ responded in verse 29 and said, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. It takes extra closeness to God to deal with this spirit. You must be closer to God to deal with this spirit. And of course, Christ was always close to God. He could deal with that spirit, but His disciples could not. Fasting draws us very close to God. It's a, it's a law. It's a rule. When people ask, how can we afford to tithe? You know, we counsel 
people as God is calling them into the truth, and it's very normal and, and understanding, understandable for someone to ask, well, how can I afford to tithe? It's a law. It's a rule. If you tithe, God blesses your increase, and it, it works out. The math doesn't make sense on paper, but God makes it work out. And we've all seen that, haven't we? Haven't we? And then you go into your third tithe year, and God shows you yet again that he can multiply your increase, and it works out. It's a law. It's a rule. Fasting is also a, a law. It draws us closer to God. If we fast in the right way, of course, it draws us closer to God. Why else do we fast? Well, fasting draws us close to God. Fasting also gives us spiritual insight, spiritual discernment. And it's very important for us to grow spiritually on all of God's holy days, but also especially on the Day of Atonement because of what it pictures. Let's turn back to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. Fasting is a tool to give us spiritual, greater spiritual discernment. Ezra chapter 8. We know the story. Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, uh, was sending Ezra and the Levites out, the other Jews, on that long, dangerous journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And Ezra knew that the way would be dangerous. And he was ashamed to ask the king for a guard of soldiers to accompany him and the Levites and the Jews on their journey back to Jerusalem. And he was unsure what to do, so he made a decision to fast for wisdom. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him the right way, the right way, the right path, for us and our little ones, our children, that we're going potentially into harm's way, and all of our possessions, For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all of those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all of those who forsake him. It was unbecoming of Ezra the priest to ask the king for an accompaniment of soldiers He had just told the king, our God is the God and He will assist us and be with us. If you send us out, allow us to go to do God's will. So verse 23, we fasted and entreated our God for this and He answered our prayer. And God showed them the way and God also protected them on their journey. Fasting draws us closer to God. Fasting gives us spiritual discernment. Fasting helps us to humble ourselves. Fasting gives us time to meditate on what we need to do better in our lives, what we need to repent of, how we need to grow spiritually. Let's turn to Psalm 40, verse 8, brethren. Psalm 40, verse 8. The title of my sermon today is delight in the day of atonement. Delight in the day of atonement. There is much to delight in when we understand and review what the day of atonement portends. Psalm 40, verse 8. One of many psalms where David is Rejoicing in God's law. Notice what he says here, David in Psalm 40, verse 8. He says, I will, he says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. David delighted to do God's will. The holy days are God's will. We delight to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, don't we? We talk about it. We talk about its meaning. And that's very appropriate. We should. We delight in what it pictures. We delight in going and celebrating and worshiping during the Feast of Tabernacles. But we should delight in the Day of Atonement as well. 
We should delight in all of God's will, all of God's law. Because when we understand what the Day of Atonement pictures, we understand it is a joyous day. It's a sobering day as well, but it's a joyous day. What are some of the events that will transpire in the future? How many years in the future will it be? Most likely within the lifetime of most of us in this room. Here we are on the weekly Sabbath before trumpets and the Day of Atonement. What events will transpire during these days a few years from now? I don't know how many years, but I don't think it's a hundred. I think it's a lot less than that, probably within our lifetime and the lifetime of many of us. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15. We come to the time in the future when the bold judgments will be imminent. Revelation 15. Revelation chapter 15 and the next few chapters, brethren, they describe events that will take place in the not too distant future. Events that God's church teaches will take place between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. Now remember, the Feast of Trumpets announces the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is a year long, so we have to remember which Feast of Trumpets we're talking about because you'll have the Feast of Trumpets and then you'll have a year-long period, Day of the Lord, and then there will be another Feast of Trumpets, won't there? And then what comes after that second Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement? What comes after that? The Feast of Tabernacles. Is God perfect? Does God do things perfectly? Did He bring Israel out of Egypt exactly on time? I think God does things perfectly. So God's church teaches that these events are what will transpire during the days that we're picturing now. Revelation 15, verse 1, that I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. We're going to skim through most of this chapter. And I saw something like a sea of glass. We know from Revelation 4, 6, that this is describing God's throne. This is God's throne. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast over His image and over His mark and over the number of His name, standing on the sea of glass, standing before God's throne, having harps of God, the resurrected first fruit saints, standing on the sea of glass before God's throne with harps in their hand. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works. We've just seen God's works during the majority of the day of the Lord and there are yet more works to come. We're looking forward to seeing Satan be bound by that chain. And we've seen God's works. We've seen God's works in our lives when we were human beings, when He called us out of the world, when He protected us, when He gave us answers to our prayers, when He healed us, when He blessed the Gospel so it could go out powerfully to the world as a warning, as a witness to the nations. But then we saw God's works during the Great Tribulation when He protected His Philadelphia remnant in a place of safety. When the two witnesses witnessed. And we're going to see more powerful works. And then we're going to see Satan bound. Brethren, this is real. This describes real events. It's exciting. We can take delight in understanding that this plan that God reveals through His holy days, it is coming to pass. And we can participate in it. And we can be recipients of these blessings. So after these things I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen 
and, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave, uh, gave to the seven angels seven golden, bull, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And so we have the bowl judgments that will come in rapid succession. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. I pray to God that you are there. I pray to God that I'm there. As Paul talked about in Thessalonians, those who are alive will not precede those who have died before in the faith. Won't it be awesome to be there with King David, with Abraham, with Paul, with John, with Mr. Armstrong? I really give thanks to God and I appreciate so much uh, Mr. Ames's refining and clarification of, of really what takes place here. It's, it's, it's phenomenal, brethren. I grew up in the church of God. I've read these pages as you have many times. But the clarity, brethren, of what takes place during this time, it's amazing. If we're in the temple at that time, we're immortal, we'll be there during that time, and those who are outside cannot come in. Those who are outside are mortal. They cannot come in. Let's turn forward a few scriptures to Revelation, a few chapters to Revelation chapter 19. <clears throat> These chapters describe what will take place during that time between trumpets and the Day of Atonement. And then immediately after the Day of Atonement, we of course have the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth, which is uh, predicted or which is uh, foretold by the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Revelation 19, verse 11. Here we have Christ, the conqueror, coming. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Brethren, I want to be here, not because of the vengeance, not because I want to see the death, but I want to be here because that will mean that I've made it. That will mean that you've made it. That we've overcome Satan. That we've overcome this world. That we've understood and delighted in God's law. Understood and delighted in God's holy days. That we've kept the Day of Atonement rightly. The Feast of Tabernacles rightly. The last great day rightly and look forward to what they mean. Verse 12, Christ's eyes were like a flame of fire and his head on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The Logos, the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule over them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh, a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We read in verses 19 and 20 about the beast and false prophet being captured at that time. Then we come down to chapter 20. Chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. And now we come to, most likely, the event that will take place on the Day of Atonement, which we'll be delighting to observe, delighting to worship God in a week from today. I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the chain, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. We read this already. Satan will be bound. He'll be bound. He'll be cast into that bottomless pit and shut up for 1,000 years. Do we delight, brethren, in this understanding that we have? As Dr. Meredith will often say, only the church of God, those who have come through and from 
God's church under Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong have this full understanding about God's holy days. And that's true. To the best of my knowledge, that's, I've, I've not encountered anyone outside of the church of God who understands the meaning behind any more than maybe one or two of God's holy days. You have that understanding. It's a tremendous blessing when we observe the feast days and when we keep the Day of Atonement. We need to be reminded of what they picture. That will help us get through the days and the years ahead. That will help us have the the zeal that we need to have to resist, to stand fast, to endure. Because we're going to need to do that, brethren, over the years to come. God's holy days are that map, that road map, that shows us what is coming, that shows us the events that are going to come upon the earth, and that show us what our reward will be if we obey God, honor God, serve God. Let's turn back to Leviticus 16. Spend a little more time talking about the Day of Atonement in particular, the establishment of the ordinances surrounding the Day of Atonement, and a little bit more about their meaning. We sort of looked at the end of the story. Let's go back to the beginning. Leviticus 16. We're going to begin in verse 29. Leviticus 16, verse 29. This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do, do no work at all. Whether a native of your own country or a stranger who sojourns among you. Verse 30. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. And you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. But we don't observe it only because it was observed 3,000 years ago. We don't observe it only because it's commanded. We observe it also because of what it pictures. Because of the joy that we have, brethren, in knowing that Satan will be put away for for a thousand years and then forever knowing that we will become at one with God, spirit beings, no more encased in flesh that deteriorates, but powerful, perfect, wonderful spirit beings in the God family. We delight in that truth. Leviticus 16.21, we'll back up a few verses. Leviticus 16, verse 21. Here we have the the goats. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. That goat that prefigured Satan, that goat that was led into the wilderness by the hand of a strong man, which pictured what will happen to Satan the devil in a few years. That the sins will be laid upon him, and he will be led away. He will be chained. He will be restrained in darkness, in the pit, for a thousand years. Satan shall bear upon himself, as it says in verse 22 to paraphrase, the goat bared upon itself all the iniquities of the inhabitants. That goat was released into the wilderness. Satan will be released into the pit, the abysmos. When Satan saw this ceremony. 
he saw what portended his future. The Levites in ancient Israel, how much did they really understand about what they were participating in? Some with the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, did. But we can look back on this and we see what this pictured. Satan being banished for a thousand years. Those sins being laid upon his head. Him being put into the pit where right now, Revelation 9, 1 and 2 and 3 describe there are currently demons restrained in a pit. Let's turn there for we have a moment. Revelation 9, verses 1, 2 and 3. I was worried I would spend too much time going through the holy days. And uh, my pace is, is, I'm on schedule, so I have a moment. Revelation 9, verse 1. Revelation 9, 1. Here we have what your Bible probably describes as locusts that ascend from this bottomless pit. Revelation 9, 1. There is a pit that currently exists where there are demons that are currently restrained. Revelation 9.1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts, or demons, came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were, given, they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Fearful time. So Satan will be bound, chained, cast into most likely this pit, the abyss-os, for that thousand years. And that's what was portended by the goat that was cast into the wilderness in ancient Israel. Now, this is something that we understand. We've written about this many times. Mr. Ames, in the September-October 2012 Living Church News, uh, discussed some of this. September-October 2012 Living Church News, Mr. Ames is discussing what will happen on and during the days leading up to the Day of Atonement and on the Day of Atonement. And here's what Mr. Ames wrote. Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong came to believe that the seventh trumpet will take place on the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month of God's sacred calendar. We also know that the seven last plagues complete the wrath of God, beginning with the seventh trumpet. Notice again where the born-again victorious saints will stand as the seven last plagues are poured out. And then Mr. Ames quotes Revelation 15, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Mr. Ames quoted Revelation 15, 1 and 2. He continues, and again, this is from the September-October 2012 Living Church News. Mr. Ames continues, After this momentous event, the seven last plagues described in Revelation 16, remember we skipped over chapter 16, 17. Mr. Ames uh, continues that those uh, seven last plagues described in Revelation 16 will be poured out for the next nine days culminating in the putting away of Satan on the Day of Atonement. Earth's armies will gather at Megiddo, preparing their futile attempt to fight Christ, verses 14 and 16. As Mr. O'Gwin writes in Revelation, the mystery unveiled. Again, this is, in a way, brethren, it's, it's nothing new. I think Mr. Ames has really helped to refine our focus on these events, but it's what we've taught. It's what we've taught for decades Mr. Ames quotes Mr. John O'Gwen from Revelation, the Mystery Unveiled, page uh, 42. Most likely the action that is described in the book of Revelation as occurring between the blowing of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11:15 and the putting away of Satan in Revelation 22 will take place in a nine-day span between trumpets and atonement. 
there's much meaning to the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, as we know. The Sabbath that we're enjoying today. Don't you look forward to this Sabbath, whether it's 15 or 12 or 20, however many years in the future. Don't you look forward to this Sabbath? You'll be a God being if you're counted worthy. You will have seen God at His throne. It will be a traumatic scene on the earth below. You won't have to fear it. You will have survived the three and a half years of great tribulation in the day of the Lord. You'll be there with David, James, the brother of Christ, Noah. That is the reality that we look forward to. That is this Sabbath, X number of years in the future. That is the Day of Atonement that we're going to delight in X number of years in the future. Great meaning in God's holy days. And we know this. We delight in all of God's holy days. Great meaning. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 58. We often read Isaiah 58 when we discuss fasting and when we discuss the Day of Atonement, but I wanted to save Isaiah 58 for this moment in the sermon because hopefully, brethren, at this point, our minds are envisioning the future. They're envisioning those momentous events that will have taken place and that are still taking place that will take place during these days, whether it's 15 or 20 or 30 years in the future, we don't know exactly. Isaiah 58 is a prophetic passage. It instructs us in how to fast, but it is replete with meaning, full of meaning, regarding the Day of Atonement, regarding Christ's return, regarding us becoming God-beings. Notice Isaiah 58, verses 1 and 2. We hear, read that we are to cry aloud, lift up our voice like a trumpet. The church of God is to tell Jacob their transgressions, their sins. Verse 2, Israel will not repent. Israel will not heed that warning. Do I expect tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to come before the Great Tribulation, to become baptized, come into the church of God? God could do it. God could do it. But passage after passage, brethren, it tells us that Israel will turn a dull ear to the warning. Verses 3 and 4 talk about <clears throat> fasting that has not, does not please God. And then we come down to verse 5. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast? Would you call this an acceptable day to the Lord? Verse 6. This is God's fast. This is what God wants us to think about, brethren, when we fast on the Day of Atonement a week from today. Is this not the fast that the Lord has chosen? The purpose of our fast. To loose the bonds of wickedness. The bonds of wickedness that bind us, we can break them through the tool of fasting, drawing closer to God. The spiritual discernment, the spiritual insight, the spiritual strength that we can gain from using that tool of fasting. Fasting is a tool. Christ told the disciples, you know, there are some demons that you can't deal with without going into battle prepared by using that tool of fasting. But it's much bigger than just us. 
God's plan of salvation, the gospel, is not just about us. That's a selfish, selfish message, a selfish perception if we think it's just about us. And shame on those outside of the living church of God who have taken that truth, that gospel, and they've put it under a basket, and they know better, they know what the Holy Days picture, but they don't care enough, love enough, to want to tell the world about it. The gospel and the truth is not just about us. It is about the world being saved. The world being redeemed. Satan being bound so he cannot deceive and cause pain upon the world. You've seen what's happening in Syria. Picture that in every city across the United States of America during the Great Tribulation. The fast that God has chosen is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, the consequences of sin, the consequences of Satan, to let the oppressed go free. And brethren, the oppressed will go free, will go free probably beginning with trumpets, but during this time, the oppressed will go free. Those that have survived three and a half years of the worst time ever since humanity, those who have survived that, they will be free. They'll be freed. They'll stream out of their captivity. The oppressed will go free in the future during these days that we're celebrating right now. Is it not to share the truth the truth. God's Word was Christ's food. God's will was Christ's food. God's Word, God's will, the truth needs to be our food. We need to share that bread with those who are spiritually hungry. The world is spiritually hungry. That is the fast that God is pleased with. When we fast on the Day of Atonement, that is the reality, brethren, that we look forward to. We can thank God that He called us into the truth, that He's opened our eyes to the meaning behind the holy days. He revealed this to Mr. Armstrong decades and decades ago. And we're holding on to the truth that God revealed to him, through him. We appreciate the leadership of Dr. Meredith and Mr. Richard Ames and Dr. Winnell and Mr. Weston and all of those faithful men. Let's not forget Mr. Bruce Tyler on the other side of the world. Sharing his bread, the bread of life, the bread that comes from God with the hungry. And as we fast in a week, we fast also asking God to bless the gospel, bless our efforts, make the gospel go out more powerfully and bring that day of Christ's return and bring that day when Satan will be bound and bring that day when the millennium will be established. When we're at the Feast of Tabernacles just in a few days from now and we're at the beach or in the mountains, wherever we're enjoying the feast, where God has placed His name and we're looking forward to the millennium, We're thinking about the good, wonderful future that the world will enjoy during that time. And we understand that. And those in Syria today, they don't understand that. Those throughout the war-torn nations of the earth, they don't have that understanding, brethren, but we do. If we fast properly and appropriately, then, verse 8, and I just am humbled by the way God describes you know, what, what our future can be, brethren. He's talking about the first fruits in verse 8. He's talking about us. He's talking about you. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall, bring, shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord 
will be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and He will say, Here I am. And we will be with Him forever. As Paul said in Colossians, don't let anyone judge you in these feast days except the body of Christ, the church of God. They picture great momentous things to come, brethren. Great things to come. We don't keep the feasts only because ancient Israel kept the feast. We are commanded to keep the feasts. Jesus Christ kept the feast. We will keep the feast in the kingdom of God. We will teach and instruct in God's law and in God's feasts. But we also keep the feasts and the Day of Atonement because we delight in what those days picture. Of course, then we have the Feast of Tabernacles and then the last great day. Do we delight in the Day of Atonement, brethren? Do we delight in the understanding that we have regarding Satan being bound? Regarding our sins being atoned for by Christ's sacrifice? The Day of Atonement does also remind us that Christ's blood covers, kapar is the Hebrew word, our sins. It's a reminder of that. We're thankful for that because we cannot inherit the kingdom of God if we are still under the penalty of sin. So brethren, we look forward to the the millennial age. We look forward to what the Day of Atonement pictures. We look forward to all things being put under Christ. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2 as we begin our conclusion. Hebrews chapter 2. We take great joy, brethren, in observing God's feast days. And we take great joy in understanding what these days picture. Yes, there are sobering events to come. But God will get you through it if you stay close to Him. If you stay close to Him. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's notice verse 5. Speaking of the world to come, tomorrow's world, He did not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Why did God go to all the trouble to establish these holy days that we observe? What is man that God is mindful of him? Or the son of man that you should take that you take care of him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and you set him over the works of your hands. And you have put all things in subjection under his feet. All things. Now this this prophecy was looking for it was looking back on when all things will be under Christ and under us. And then here Paul in verse eight, he clarifies. He clarifies what we read in verse 7 and 8, and he makes it clear. He says, For in that he put all, and as we've read and heard, this is everything, pos, all, everything that ever has existed, that ever will exist. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. We do not yet see all these things. We don't yet, we've not yet inherited that kingship under Christ. We've not yet received our inheritance. But all things will be put under us as we're under Christ. Today, verse 9. What do we see today? We don't yet see all the glory and the dominion, the galaxies that extend forever and ever in the spirit realm that we have a little insight into. We don't see all of that yet, but today, verse 9, 
we see Jesus. We follow His example. We live by His words. We have faith in Him as our High Priest. As the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, as John described Him, and as the Lamb that is worthy to take the scroll, as the Apostle John described Him, and as that conquering Lamb that will come on that white horse, and as our High Priest who will marry us and we will live with God and Christ forever in glory. We see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Yes, atonement is a reminder of His death, which covers our sins. Brethren, we've reviewed... A little bit, the meaning of the Day of Atonement and God's holy days. We should take great joy in celebrating and observing God's holy days. Let's go forward into God's fall holy day season rejoicing, delighting in God's law, delighting as we keep the Feast of Tabernacles, the last great day. But brethren, let's also delight in the Day of Atonement.